appreciate you just being a part of our services today. Also, there are on the inside aisle of the, uh, of the row that you're sitting in um, some little attendance log sheets, if you would, fill that out, pass it on down. We don't need your home address. We don't need your telephone number, but an email would be great. So uh, lob an email in there. We would appreciate you doing that and then pass it on down the row. Um, when I was 16 years old, my mom and dad were heading out for uh, dinner uh, with a, another couple, and I had been outside, gotten sweaty, and came inside to grab a shower, and I heard them holler out to me. They said, hey, Gordon, we're heading out with so-and-so uh, for this evening, and I said, okay, from the shower, and so then they headed on out. Well, I got out of the shower. I cleaned up and got everything, and then I went and sat down, probably ate a bag of Cheetos. You know how it was when you were 16 years old. And I uh, watched a little TV, and then uh, for some reason I went back into the kitchen, and I looked out in the carport, and my mom and dad's car was in the carport. And uh, I'm thinking to myself, hold on, I thought that they left already, See, so they were supposed to go out with some friends, and the friends they were meeting with lived in another town over, so I knew my mom and dad were going to have to drive to go meet them. And so immediately my mind goes, where's my mom and dad? Like they said they were leaving, I don't see them around the house, but their car's still here. What could possibly have happened? And so in my 16-year-old mind, I'm thinking to myself, Jesus has just come back, and I have missed <laughs> my shot at going to heaven. And so I'm seriously, I, I was starting to freak out. And so I'm thinking to myself, well, where could they be? And I'm looking around the house again. Maybe they're down in the basement. Maybe they're doing a hide-and-seek thing with me here. And so I'm walking around the house. My heart beats racing, and I think, well, I'm going to call my youth pastor, right? At least, she's, uh, at least I know that she's a believer, and at least that'll make me feel a little bit better. And so I called her up. I called her my youth pastor. And she answers the phone, her name was Ron, and she says, hello, and oh, I just felt so much better. I was like, oh, I didn't miss Jesus, it's so good. Well, come to find out, my mom and dad's friends came over and picked them up at the house and then went on to some other town, some other restaurant, and that's how the whole thing worked. Um, today, we are in our series on the book of Revelation, and we come to Revelation chapter 20, which brings us to the end of time. I'll talk about that here in just a little bit, but first, let's look at these verses in Revelation chapter 20. I'm going to ask for you to stand to your feet. We're going to read verses 11 through 15. We stand week in and week out to be reminded that this is where truth from comes from. Doesn't what people, matter what people said on Facebook. Doesn't matter what they wrote on Instagram. Doesn't matter what they said at work. The only thing that matters, friends, is what God says, what God thinks, and we don't have to wonder. He wrote it down. So let's read together Romans chapter, Romans, Revelation chapter 20, beginning at verse 11. Here we go. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what is written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done." Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Um, so let's kind of, what I would like to do today uh, before we tackle any of that is to go back to the beginning of the book of Revelation and start work. I'm sorry, back to the book. Woo. That would be a really long sermon, wouldn't it? Back to the beginning of chapter 20, and we're going to work our way forward to what we just read, okay? So if you would, flip back to your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, or you can follow along with me on the screen. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. So there's this angel that shows up in John's Revelation, and the angel's holding a key to what it says is the bottomless pit. Now, the bottomless pit is synonymous with what we just read, 
what's referred to in verse 13 as death and Hades, and then again in verse 14 where it says, and then the dead were, that came out of the sea, and then they were also, um, I'm trying to read it back here, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. So it's synonymous with this idea of death and Hades, the bottomless pit. It's a holding tank. It's a place for people who are not believers, a people who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus, a people who have not appealed to the Lord for the forgiveness of their sins. It's a holding tank for them where they are uh, for eternity, waiting until the end of time when Jesus returns and then the final judgments happen. And so that's what death and Hades is. It's, this, it's not the lake of fire. The lake of fire is a different place. We get to that a little bit later here in this chapter. But death and Hades is this kind of a holding tank. It's the realm of Satan. It's the realm of demons. Um, it's a dark place. It's a place without God. It's not heaven. And so again, it's this holding tank where people are waiting final judgment. Now let me show you another slide here real quickly to kind of try and put some of this in perspective as to when some of this stuff is taking place. Here's a timeline I have for you of human history. This is kind of how the Bible sees human history unfolding, okay? This is the big, big, uh, big picture of human history. So human history starts at creation. God started the whole thing off, kicked the whole thing off at creation, and then the fall happened, and then, it con and then human history moves forward until we get to the time of Jesus. And so that first period of history is what we refer to as the age of the law or the Old Testament age of biblical history. The second age is the New Testament age. That's the age that we live in now, and the Holy Spirit is the part of the Godhead that resides here on planet Earth. It's hanging out, uh, in dwelling inside of us, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19, which says, do you not know that your body, this thing, is the temple of the Holy Spirit? So God's Holy Spirit now dwells inside of us. And so during this church age, that's what's different between where God dwelt in the temple, the tabernacle, now he dwells inside of us. We are now his temple. And that's the church age in which we're in. Now, if you'll notice as you're looking through to that uh, slide that on the far end of it, eventually time will come to an end. Eventually human history will stop. It'll cease. Um, and all things will be, uh, basically, at the end of time, right? So that's the end of you and I. That's the end of this world as, as we know it. And so that's what we're reading toward. We're moving on our way toward that. But what we're talking about right now is this, uh, is this bottomless pit, and we're going to see what happens here next in verse 2. So go to verse 2 with me, and it tells us uh, who got thrown in this bottomless pit. It says, the angel seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him. Now, what does it mean to bind Satan? Well, I don't know if you've ever watched a radio, a rodeo show. Oh, I'm all over the place today. Um, I, don't know, I had some donuts earlier, so I should be good to go. But um, in any case, there's a, there's a uh, I don't know if you ever watched a rodeo before where they rope the calves, right? And then they go out, they, they jump off their horse, they grab the calves, they grab its feet, and they bind the calves' feet, right? They wound them up. Well, what are they doing to that calf? They're not killing it. Right? They're immobilizing the calf. They're limiting its ability to get around and do what that calf would want to do. And so the binding of Satan here in this passage is limiting Satan's mobility, limiting Satan from doing what Satan would like to do. And so what is it that he's being limited from? Well, verse 3 tells us, it says, And the angel threw him, that is Satan, into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that, here's why he can't do anymore, he cannot deceive the nations any longer. So the purpose of tying Satan up, right, the purpose of binding Satan is so that he can't go out into the world, so that he can't continue to deceive the nations any longer. Now, real quick, I'm going to ask if we could go back to that timeline where we see what Satan was up to at the beginning uh, in, in the first half of human history. In the first half of human history, the Bible teaches that Satan was the prince of this world. That is that Satan was running amok all over the world. But there was one little piece of land, one little piece of real estate where Satan didn't have authority, where Satan didn't have reign, and that was the nation of Israel. That was in the Old Testament age. 
But knowledge about God, knowledge about forgiveness of sins, all those sorts of things were not present during the Old Testament age globally. And so in that Old Testament age, Satan was literally the prince of this world. He ran amok. He was doing all sorts of things, deceiving the nations of the world. But now, because he's been bound, he no longer can just run all over the earth and deceive the nations of the earth. And so because of that, the gospel is able to go forward. The message about God, the God of the Bible, is able to go beyond the borders of national Israel. Um, you say again, Gordon, well, is, are you saying that that's something that we're waiting for? Or you're saying that it seems like that's already happened, that Satan's been bound. Well, Satan has already been bound. Uh, this has already happened. You say, well, when did it happen? Was it a slow go kind of thing coming at some point through history? Or did God just all of a sudden do it at once? Well, it happened during the lifetime of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus and Matthew chapter 12 and verse 29 says, how can someone enter a strong man's house? In this particular passage of scripture, the strong man is Satan and his house is the world, the global world. And so Jesus says, how can I enter into the strong man's house? How can I come into the world where Satan has all this authority and he's running around and he's deceiving people? How can I do that unless, he says, I first bind him, unless I first bind the strong man? And again, this earth was his house. He was the prince of this earth. He ran amok, deceiving the nations. And so Jesus says, I'm anticipating a day when I will enter into Satan's home, when I will enter into his domain, when I will come into the world where he's the prince of this world, and I will bind him. I will limit his mobility. I will limit his ability to do what he wants to do, and that is to deceive people, to keep people from coming to the God of the Bible. And the day that that binding happened, friends, was the day that the Lord Jesus was lifted up on the cross, and then it was completed three days later when he was resurrected from the grave. Jesus said this in John chapter 12 and verse 31. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world, the strong man, Satan, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. I'm going to kick him out of here. I'm going to put him in the bottomless pit, in the abyss. I'm going to put a chain around him. I'll lock it up so he won't be able to run amok in the world like he used to, deceiving the nations. And he says, verse 32, when I'm lifted up from the earth, referring to the cross, now because he's been bound, I will draw all men unto myself. Friends, all men is beyond the borders of national Israel. All men and women, all people, is beyond the borders, beyond the limits of that little piece of real estate that we knew as national Israel. But again, in order for that to happen, in order for Satan to be bound, in order for his power to be limited, in order for his mobility to be reduced, and for the gospel to go forward, Satan had to be cast out of this world. Satan had to be bound. Let's go back to Revelation 20 and verse 2 with me. Revelation 20 and verse 2. It gives us the duration, how long this binding of Satan is going to last. Verse 2 says, we're going to bind him up for a thousand years. Years. And then again in verse 3, it says that uh, Satan will be locked up until the thousand years were ended. That After that, he must be released for a little while. So the Bible tells us here that Satan will be bound up. He'll be stuck in the bottomless pit. Jesus has done this already um, for a thousand years. You say, well, Gordon, if I'm counting from the time of Jesus to now, we're bypassed. We've, we've missed a thousand years, right? We've, we've overshot. Um, we're a thousand years beyond the time at which Christ or, or you know, things should have, should have uh, his thousand years were up. Um, well, that's a great observation. Did some of you make that observation? Got a few math teachers in here, right? You're pretty sharp with your math. Didn't take long. 
Um, so how do we understand this? How can we say that Satan was bound and that Christ did this work and that the thousand years are ended? I mean, how do we reconcile all this? Well, look at uh, Psalm chapter 50 and verse 10. Psalm chapter 50 and verse 10 is an example of where the thousand years is a symbolic number. Uh, in Psalm chapter 50 and verse 10, it reads these words. It says, for every animal of the forest uh, is mine and the cattle on a thousand hillsides, God says, are mine. So the question I pose to you here is God saying by saying that the, he, uh, he owns the cows on a thousand hillside that he only owns the cows on a thousand hillsides? No, his point is that he owns all of them, right? By saying I own the th- cattle on a thousand hillsides, he's saying I own all of them. And so this number of thousand all throughout Scripture, I'll give you another example of this here in a minute, is a symbolic number of completion. It's a symbolic number of perfection. The number 10 in the Scriptures is always a number of quantitative perfection, 1,000 is a multiple of 10, and so when we're dealing with the number 1,000, it occurs all over, all over the place in the Scriptures. It's always dealing with the number of quantitative perfection, of God saying, I've completely all of it. Everything's wrapped up. It's a number of completion. It's a number of quantitative perfection. Another example of this, Exodus chapter 20, because some of you are looking at me like, I don't know about that. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 6, God is talking to Moses, and he says, love, he says, I will show love, to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So God here tells Moses, hey Moses, if you, if you love me, and if this generation of people who are, who are following me will love me, I will love them for a thousand generations off into the future. Is God saying that the number 1,000 is an exact number? No. I mean, is God going to, when he gets to generation 1,001, he's going to cut off his love? And all of a sudden, it's going to end? No, the number 1,000, again, here is a number of completion. It's a number of quantitative perfection. It's God's way of saying, hey, look, this is going to go on. My love's going to go on for a long, long time. So this binding of Satan for 1,000 years is not to be taken as a literal 1,000 years. No more than God only owns the cattle on 1,000 hillsides. No more than God's love will only extend out 1,000 generations. The point is, when God is ready to unbind Satan to release him back into the world, and the time is right for that, God's going to do it when the thousand years are up. Um, I'm going to skip through verses four through six because there's a lot in there. I'm not going to be able to tackle some of that. Let's go forward to verse seven. Verse seven takes us to the end of the 1,000 years, the end of Satan's binding. And in case you've ever wondered when in the Bible, where in the Bible does it talk about the end of time? I hear books about it, there's movies about it out there, but where does the Bible actually talk about this? Well, there's, what, four verses? I had to do that for a second. Four verses in the Bible that talk about the end of time. Here it comes. You ready? Here comes verse 7. It says, and when the thousand years are ended, so thousand years are up, Satan will be released from his prison, so he's let out of the abyss, he's let out of the bottomless pit, he's let out of Hades during this church age where he's been. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, verse 8, and he will come back out to deceive the nations. He's going to go back to doing what he had done before. He's going to deceive people. He's going to prevent them and their minds from being able to rationalize and understand and gain knowledge about the God of the Bible, about their sin problem, and about how Jesus is the solution to their sin problem. Um, He says that he's going to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of of the earth. Now, I want to stop right there and talk about this term earth for just a moment. I've got a slide for you here, and it shows you the Greek word that's used for what's translated there as earth. When we hear the word earth, we think of, right, the whole globe. We think of the whole business. 
when the people in the first century heard the word gain, which is the Greek word that's used there, they thought of something very different than, than this. They thought of something much more uh, exact. Um, the word gain literally means dirt or it means soil, but it's a specific kind of dirt. It's a specific kind of soil. It's the kind of dirt or soil that you can raise crops in. It's, good, it's soil that's arable. It's soil that's good for farming. You can go out, till this soil, plant your seeds, and stuff will grow in it. It's good soil. Um, and so I got a map for you here, and it shows where some good soil happens to be in that part of the world uh, around the nation of Israel. And so you can see what's called there the Fertile Crescent. Um, and this is what the area that they, in the first century, understood when they used the word gain. This is what they understood that term to mean, that it was referring to this particular swath of land that's in green that you see there. It runs from Mesopotamia in the north down through Israel, kind of in the middle of the whole thing. And then it uh, winds up in the south in Egypt all the way down toward Ethiopia um, on the southern end. Um, and so, again, when they, when they used the word gain, they were referring to this particular patch of land, this patch of land that was good for raising crops because everything else around that green patch was what? It was desert. That's right. It was, there was, you couldn't grow anything out there. I mean, we're out in the Arabian desert. There's nothing but oil out there. Um, it's just a bunch of desert sand. And so that green swath was good for cultivating, uh, good for farming. Um, the other land around it was unproductive. And so when they used the word gain, they were referring to that farmable dirt in that particular part of the world. Um, and you can notice on the map that it's kind of a crescent moon shape. Um, and so that's why scholars today refer to this area as the fertile, because it was good for growing stuff, crescent, because it was the crescent moon shape. Um, they had a different Greek word back in the first century that they used to refer to <clears throat> the whole smash, to the whole globe. And that was the word cosmos. Um, the word cosmos is where we get our word cosmos from. And that's the word that they would have used that refers to the whole world. And in our Bible, and some of your Bibles, the translation will read like this. It's, for instance, in John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the cosmos, the world, that he gave his one and only son. God didn't just love the people in that little patch of ground, but God loved the whole thing that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believed in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. All right, let's go back to, now we have in view what the author intends when he says earth. You with me? Now we have in view what the author means when he says the four corners of the earth. Let's go back to verse 8. So Satan's release, verse 8, to deceive the nations at the four corners of the gain, Gog and Magog. Those are some Old Testament references to the book of Ezekiel. Again, I don't want to, there's eggs to go get, right? To gather them for battle, their number is like the sands of the sea. Verse 9, and they marched up over the broad plain of the gain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city. Well, what's the beloved city? Well, remember that John is writing to a Jewish audience who are Jewish Christians at the time, and the Jewish Christians did not consider London as the beloved city. Wouldn't even have made any sense to them to think that it was London. Wouldn't have made any sense to them to think that it was New York City. And it certainly wasn't Rome. They weren't beloved of Rome. Uh, the, the beloved city, the city that the Jewish people loved, wasn't Cairo. The city they loved was Jerusalem. And I don't know a scholar, I've never read a scholar to date, that he actually tries to say that the beloved city is anything other than uh, Jerusalem. All right, let's go back to our map for just a second of the Fertile Crescent. Um, if Satan has gone out to deceive these nations, right? He's not going out into the cosmos, not into the whole world. He's gone out in the four corners of the earth. Remember, we're at the end of time now. We're at the very end of this whole bit. We're, we're in the last moments leading up to uh, Christ's return. And so in those last moments leading up to Christ's return, it says that Satan's going to be released from the bottomless pit. He's going to go out. He's going to deceive the nations at the four corners of the gain. 
which is where modern-day Iraq and Iran would be in the Far East, where Syria would be north of Israel, where Lebanon would be, where, where Jordan would be to the east of Israel, where Egypt would be to the south, and Yemen would be down to the south. And friends, those countries want nothing more than to push Jerusalem into the Mediterranean Sea. Can we not see the words of Scripture being fulfilled in our day and age or in some age, you know, in the, off into the future some point with these nations that already surround Israel, that are already poised with their hatred to, tw- to want to be deceived by Satan, to want to say, okay, we're going to make our final push. We're going to finally get rid of the nation of Israel. And we can see that happening. Um, look back again at verse 9 with me. Uh, what's going to happen when they try? Verse 9, here we are, the end of everything, last moments of earth. Verse 9, they're going to surround the beloved city, and then in John's vision he says, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Whoosh, right? Lightning bolts, fire, I don't know what it's going to be. Big old, uh, big old fire, big old Superman eyeball fire stuff coming out. He's going to burn up everything. No long battle, though. No epic bloody warfare. Uh, God just, fire comes down, enemies of Israel gone, and that's it. Say, well, that doesn't seem like what they wrote about in the books <laughs> or what I saw in the Left Behind movies or whatever it was and how they depicted some of that stuff. I mean, that's, that's it. There's no long drawn out. It's just they all come out to fight against Israel and fire comes down from heaven and they're gone. Kind of anticlimactic, don't you think? <laughs> Maybe y'all are looking for something a little bit more stronger. But anyhow, it's like, God, couldn't you pluck them a little bit and pull, toyed with them a little bit before you finally stuck them? But in any case, no, that's not how it's going to work. He's just going to fire come down from heaven and all their armies are consumed. Um, and then verse 10, wrap this up. It says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. They would be tormented day and night forever and ever. And that brings us to the end of human history. That's it. Um, Here's what's going to happen. Those verses that we read, verses 11 through 15, again, we got eggs to go find, so I don't have time to get to them today. Why? I don't have time to get to them today. Got to come back next week, find out what's going to happen with what happens after times come to an end. You say, Gordon, that was sneaky. On Easter Sunday, you would do something like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure did. Um, But anyhow, you come back next week, and we'll talk about the resurrection of the dead. We'll talk about the last judgments. We'll talk about how everyone will have to give account standing before Christ and what all that is going to entail, and then we'll wrap up our series on Revelation. But that's as far as we want to go today, which means it's time for us to ask our most important question. It's the question we ask every week around here, which is, what difference does all this make to my life? Say, Gordon, I mean, I appreciate a little bit of a history lesson there. I appreciate a little bit of stuff that I can anticipate off in the future if I see you know, Iraq and Iran and Syria and Egypt and Yemen getting together to go make war. I know that, you know, things may not be around here much longer. And you'd be right, because that is what the Bible prescribes as the end of time. This is what's going to precede the end of human history. Um, so, but you say, well, what, I mean, I have no idea, though, when that's going to happen. What difference does any of this make to my life today? I mean, I got kids to get off to school. We're trying to wrap up things, make summer plans. How does this help me in my life today? Well, that's a really great question. Let's talk about that. You know you're right that none of us have any idea when all of this is going to happen. Um, it could be the end of this day. I mean, Jesus could decide he's going to return today. I don't know. That's up to him. He'll decide. Um, it could happen 10,000 years from now. None of us knows. 
None of us knows when all this stuff is going to happen. Even if Christ doesn't return, friends, in your lifetime, one thing that you can guarantee is going to happen is that you will die. So whether Jesus comes back and that's the end of your life, or whether you come to the end of your natural life and you die, one way or another, you're going to come to the end of your natural life. That's, the, that's, a, that's a guaranteed result for every person who's ever been born on the planet, uh, that you are going to die. Um, so the question isn't when can we expect Christ's return, but rather are you ready for Christ's return? Satan is in his holding tank. And the message has gone beyond the borders of national Israel. And it has come to your ears even today. And so I'd like to, in the few moments that I have remaining, to talk about how you can be ready for Christ's return, or if in fact you live and to the end of your life and you die a natural death, how you can be ready for the day that you leave this world. Um, you remember that verse in John chapter 3 and verse 16? Can we bring that back up on the slide for us? Uh, John chapter 3 and verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world, the whole thing, and all the people in it, that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believed in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. Now, uh, when I was in the seminary, my professor called that a conditional promise. He wanted us to know that was a conditional promise. He wanted to give us the, the, uh, the official terminology for that particular verse. What did he meant by a conditional promise is the promise in that verse is that you can have eternal life. You see that? That's the promise. Right at the end of the verse, it says you can have eternal life. You'll not perish, but you'll have eternal life. That's the promise that God makes you. But there's a condition for receiving that promise. And the verse says that the condition for you to receive that promise is that you have to believe. You know, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believed in him would be able to have that promise. So the only way that you get to receive the promise is that you believe in Jesus. Now, friends, this is much more than just academic head knowledge. Um, this is not just knowing that Jesus was a real person and believing that he walked here on the earth and that he was a good moral teacher and that he tried to help people get along in this world. It, more than that. Um, Paul says over in Romans chapter, 9, chapter 10, Romans chapter 9 and verse 10, he says these words. He says, um, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... Um, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the idea of believing is more than just knowing that Christ walked on the earth. It's more than just knowing that he gave his life. Rather, it's believing some things about him. It's believing that Jesus came to the world, died for your sins on the cross, was raised from the dead, and that's your hope of resurrection from the dead. And that because you believed in that, because you confessed him as your Lord, because you set him up as the God of your life, that because of that, you can inherit eternal life. You can receive the promise. But again, the only way for you to receive the promise, friends, is to meet the condition. And the condition is putting your faith, not in your good works, not in the, the things that you've done in this world. I'm not sure how you're planning on getting to heaven. Uh, you may say, well, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I'm sure God will let me get into heaven. Well, let me show you what one good person thought when he got to heaven and how he felt in God's presence. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5. This is the guy from the Old Testament, Isaiah, one of the great prophets of Israel. And Isaiah is up in heaven, and he has this vision. He sees God on his throne. He pokes his head up to the clouds, and he says that um, he sees God on his throne, and there's these cherubim there, and the angels, and they're singing these songs, holy, holy, holy. And then he says, hey, this is how I feel now that I'm in God's presence. He says, woe is me. Doesn't sound a guy feels like he's real secure, does it? 
doesn't feel like, sound like a guy who feels real good about being in God's presence. He says, for I am lost. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. He realizes the sin that's in his heart. And here he is. He's walked in the presence of holy, holy, holy. He's walked in the presence of a God uh, who is holy. And he feels undone. He feels lost. He feels unclean. Friends, when you stand before a holy God and you tell him that you've recycled, he's going to say, well, I mean, that doesn't really help me out here and help us out here. The only thing that's going to help you out when you stand before a holy God is the blood of Jesus. It's the blood that Jesus shed on the cross, and you put in your faith and your trust and that for the forgiveness of your sins and nothing else. It's the only thing that's going to allow you to stand in his presence and feel safe and feel secure, and that will give you your place in heaven for eternity. That will allow you to receive the promise that God made. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for um, this opportunity to come, to hear from your word today, to hear the truth about eternal life, uh, to hear the truth about how you're in control of human history and time, and you have a plan and a, and a purpose for us in that. Lord, if there are any here today that uh, are unsure about their place in eternity, Lord, we pray, we invite that these would put their faith and their trust in you. Just a simple confession of sin, just a simple, Lord, I am a sinner and I am in need of your forgiveness. Wash my heart clean. It's that simple. And Lord, our eternity can be turned from an eternity of suffering and death and destruction to an eternity of peace and joy in your presence. God, we ask you to take these words that we sing, this meal that we share. You would encourage us with it today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. And within, overwhelmed by the weight of your sin, Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of